Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 14, Being a Mentor, with Sally Bethel and Sean Wickersham. Welcome back everyone to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. We have another episode for you where we're going to be returning to a really important role within initial teacher education and we are joined by two lovely guests. We've also, I should say to those of you just listening to this podcast recording, um, we've also got a, a studio setup that we're sitting in at the moment. We're being video recorded simultaneously so I'm highly aware that I am both seen and heard at this moment in time just so you're aware of that yeah, not if you pay me enough money <laughs> <laughs> we're here to talk about mentoring but we're going to be doing that with the help of two lovely colleagues one of whom you have heard on this podcast or you may have heard on this podcast in the past um sally bethel soon to be dr sally bethel i'm just going to say it <laughs> sally how are you doing <laughs> welcome back <laughs> thanks Emma, and I'm, i love that idea it just feels like a long way off still but thank you <laughs> I believe in you. Um, And we are also joined by a new colleague, fresh out of the box, Sean Wickersham. (laughs) Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. (laughs) And um, we're we're in a great position, actually, to talk about mentoring because we have two members of the team now who are both sort of experts in in this area, but come from two different phases. So Sally, you're from the secondary phase, specialising in physical education. um, And Sean, you're from the primary phase. So we've kind of got all based is covered before we get into the kind of nitty-gritty of the detail just tell us you, you've obviously come together this year to re-look freshly again at the role of the mentor within initial teacher education um, and I know that you're quite keen to come up with some key or core principles that are guiding everything that you do with with your mentors so maybe start there tell us about those core principles and how they came to be well I'm going to go to Sean for this one because I have to say that I- Previously, working by myself, I think these things were in my head and we I hadn't really thought about articulating them. And then when Sean joined us, it was very much that we needed to make those explicit. And Sean's really good at making things explicit, you know, and sharing them. So Sean, do you want to go? Oh, you've got a little list, I think. I have. I've written them down because sometimes I forget the third one. So when Sally and I first met, we decided that we were making decisions based on some shared principles and we wanted to communicate these principles to the rest of the team here at Cardiff Met but also to our mentors and senior mentors in schools because otherwise I think some of the decisions that we made maybe would have felt a little bit random whereas actually we'd had these things in mind. So there were three. The first was that we really wanted to empower mentors and senior mentors to feel confident and also competent to fulfil their roles. So we wanted to make sure that we were really clear with with our expectations of mentors and gave them plenty of professional learning and guidance about how to be the very best mentors and senior mentors they could be. The second was that we wanted to maintain and develop relationships with schools. So obviously to meet priority one, what we could have done is done loads and loads of work and put lots of demands on schools and demands on university tutors as well. And we realised that sometimes that isn't necessarily
necessarily the best way of maintaining and developing relationships. Um, and we also wanted to work collaboratively with the schools that we're working with to make sure that their views, opinions and their priorities are captured in our work. And the third one is similar, which is to streamline processes and avoid additional workload. Um, so when I started, I've come from a different organisation. I work for an academy network in England um, and we had a mentor training programme. And I sort of came in slightly all guns blazing, thinking we're going to do all of these different things. And actually, talking to Sally and working together, we realised that that wouldn't necessarily fit with those key principles. It's not always the best thing to do everything. And actually, making sure that we don't overload university tutors, we don't overload mentors, we don't overload senior mentors, will hopefully enable us to make more progress over time, rather than setting unrealistic expectations right from the start. I was going to pull back actually and, and refer to your previous life working outside Wales. I mean, we often glibly talk on this podcast about all the curriculum reforms going on in Wales. We're all kind of quite used to it. You've come in from outside and the other thing we often glibly talk about is the fact that things are really quite different over the border in England. So I'm just kind of curious to know what you <laughs> made of it, other than with your blazing guns, what, what you made of the scene over here, having experienced similar things somewhere that's quite different. So I have been surprised at how different it is. I'm from Cardiff originally, so we've moved back um, and I hadn't really realised that all of my working life I've been in England, that there was going to be such a big culture shift um, for me um, coming back to Wales. So the other thing to say is that I am used to working for an academy network where we have schools that we were essentially supporting, but also we were kind of in charge of a little bit. Yeah. So the relationship between my role and the schools was quite different. I could be quite directive and say, these are the things we're going to do this year. Whereas at Cardiff Met, obviously, we're a partnership. Um, and so that kind of shift from directive to working in partnership has been interesting. Curriculum is one of the biggest ones. For me, the curriculum in England is very specific. It's specified. And at primary, you are given the content that you're going to be teaching with, um, with obviously some flexibility to be able to adapt that for your context. Um, and then obviously, the curriculum for Wales is very different to that and there's a lot of work going on with that. The other big difference is the focus on research and inquiry. I have to say that I don't think I'd ever really come across the terms research and inquiry. Um, some of the things I think are research and inquiry by different names and I think that's something that we found a little bit in schools is that sometimes mentors and senior mentors might be doing research and inquiry but not necessarily realising they're doing research and inquiry and I would say that's probably the same for me um, but this is my first kind of foray into university life and into the big focus in Wales on research and inquiry. So that's been another big shift for me. Thanks, Sean. And um, just sticking with this idea of research and inquiry, Sally, you've seen the mentor role within initial teacher education evolve over quite some time. For those people who have no idea the role of a mentor within initial teacher education and Sean also mentioned that the senior mentor there, maybe you could just tell us what they are in our current programmes and maybe how that role has evolved, the mentor role has evolved over the time that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, what Sean says about the um, research inquiry having been present, but perhaps not given that name, I think there was an element of it previously. We're now having it as a sort of foundational part of clinical practice is an expectation that student teachers are involved in it, but they are supported by their mentors and senior mentors um, to take part in that process. But it, it is much more a shift of 
not just when you're in school, you learn by observing and practicing. It's actually sort of digging deeper in that and using that as a starting point, but talking to people, working with experts, and then moving on to literature and research. And um, sort of this whole idea that knowledge can come from a whole variety of places. Mm. Um, and we've been using the McIntyre continuum and just like, look, look at this list. And I'm sure lots of people have seen different presentations that we've done that frequently comes up. And it's sort of right from the basics of the classroom to very sort of intense research projects. You know, mm. there's a whole load of places that you can develop your knowledge from. But we want our mentors to be encouraging our students to look at things that they need to develop or things that are interesting, curious, but use all these sort of um, opportunities to develop their knowledge mm. and then see what happens when they use it. You know, does it does it have the impact that they want it to? So I think that sh- it, there is a real shift from not just doing the teaching, but actually unpicking it and then using a lot of different sources to go, how could it be different? How could it be improved? What is good and why do you keep it? Because mm. if you want to put it in a different situation, you've got to want to really understand why it was good. Yes, and that's that's the fascinating bit. I think that's the bit we want to get into. Um, before we do, just noting that, was it the third principle was about kind of making sure that the things they were doing were you know going to have impact? It was going to get cutting out any of the superfluous... I'm going to call it admin and paperwork, maybe, could be, or aspects of the workload of the mentor that weren't necessarily going to have, you know, a really profound impact on the student and to obviously help the mentor with their sort of workload management. But with that in mind, were you also trying to free up space so that they could get their heads around research and inquiry and how to support students with research and inquiry is that is that a priority it's definitely a priority i mean that as as sean said with one of the principles is actually you know, we wanted to be able to get mentors to focus on specific things but not too many things so very much this year about sort of stripping it back and going i know i've just sort of said knowledge can come from lots of different places but actually try to upskill people in a couple of strategies that they might employ but do that consistently well, understand that and employ it. Mm-hmm. So that was the idea of looking at team teaching and, and learning conversations as specific approaches to supporting research and inquiry. Wonderful. Sean. I think you, you're in a position to tell us a bit about those two strategies. Um, why did you choose those two in the first instance? So it'd be interesting to know why those two. And, I, and it's a really interesting point, you know, we, we need to start kind of incrementally by by building up the mentor's confidence with these strategies. So why did you choose those two and and what do they entail? So we started off with the McIntyre continuum, um, as Sally mentioned, and we worked through what those different stages would look like in practice. So what are the different activities that student teachers could engage with as part of their research and inquiry time? And then we landed on learning conversations and team teaching. Learning conversations because it underpins an awful lot of the other research and inquiry activities. So for example, if a student teacher has done some observation, The very act of observing is not usually sufficient. There needs to be a learning conversation that happens definitely after the observation and possibly before the observation as well to make sure that that focus is really pinpointed, that the student teacher knows what it is that the mentor is asking them to look at or what it is that the question is asking, whatever it is that they're researching. Um, And the second being team teaching, because this is something that is timetabled. um, And we felt like it would have a really big impact if we could get that to be done slightly better 
better. Um, it's being done well now. But if we could increase the level of expertise that the mentors have with planning a really effective team teaching session, we felt like that would have a really big impact. Then the other reason we chose these two things is because we thought they might be strategies that mentors didn't necessarily think were research and inquiry um, because actually team teaching is um, something that you do with your student teacher almost naturally it's also something that's timetabled but also it's a research and inquiry activity the same with learning conversations these conversations are happening happening constantly throughout the day but actually that they are doing research and inquiry when they're having that conversation with you and I think sometimes when we hear the words research and inquiry we think academic articles and the mentors feel like I'm not someone that has a lot of experience with academic articles therefore I'm not very good at research and inquiry and that just isn't the case these two are strategies that I think all of our mentors are using and doing and we're trying to encourage and develop mentors to be able to do those slightly better and then linking back to that third principle around streamlining processes and avoiding additional workload um, Sally and I made the decision to provide a professional learning session for schools and that's not to say that we're being directive and saying you need to run this professional learning session in exactly this way and um, we provided some guidance on how to use this um, session so if mentors wanted to select certain elements of it they could if they wanted to run it exactly like it was planned they could but um, I know that a lot of the senior mentors found that really helpful because rather than all of our hundreds of partnership schools all trying to plan their own sessions based on these two principles, they've got a framework to work on. And the senior mentors and mentors that I've spoken to have been really positive about that. Lots of them have adapted the resources to fit their context um, and fit the experience of the mentors in their school. But a lot of them are using those resources, which I think has been effective from a workload perspective. And then also it's been effective from a consistency perspective as well. I have very fond memories of being a mentor, actually, for this institution when I used to work in school. But thinking back, you know, it was very much uh, a role that you just did because you wanted to do it. Uh, you didn't get anything particularly for it. Uh, the training was very much based around the kind of form filling side of things. And you imparted your craft knowledge to your students. And what you're telling us here is that you're, first of all, you're really kind of professionalizing that process of incorporating that craft knowledge into what the student teacher does. But you're also trying to open out the role to encompass a, a, a wider definition of research and inquiry. It's a much meatier role. It's less of an administrative role. It feels like a more high status role now to me. And I'm just wondering, are schools with us on that anywhere? Uh, is the role becoming more high status? Are schools giving mentors what they need? I think I think you're absolutely right. It's high, more high status. I think the recognition in some schools is of that because they actually have quite a strong um, provision for coaching and mentoring already within their school that runs through being a professional and developing staff. And it feeds into that very nicely. But I think we have mixed practice. And I think... The lack of time available for the role is the one inhibitor. You know, you want people to do these things really well, really thoroughly. And we know that everything like that takes time and they're working on limited time. So I think even where it's, you know, being professionalised, it is recognised as an, a really important role. There needs to be recognition that that needs time to do it effectively across the board. And that's possibly an aspect that needs really good consideration by a lot of different people and I think with that in mind it was a very shrewd move 
to go with strategies, as you say, Sean, that are the kind of bread and butter of what a mentor does, particularly those professional learning conversations that actually shouldn't take too much more time and effort. But when fine-tuned, I would imagine, hopefully you'll be able to tell us, could have a, a much bigger impact on, on the student-teacher yeah, and maybe we, on the mentor. And I think what we wanted to do with that is kind of almost rebrand the chat to being a professional learning conversation that is really focused on something that will support the student teacher moving forwards. And and it isn't those, it, it, and it, you, know, you could say it is still a chat, but it, we wanted to have a sort of name for it as opposed to have, you know, have a little chat with your mentor. It was actually, that's a professional learning conversation when it is focused on helping the student teacher make progress. Mm. Um, So it was a rebranding exercise to an extent, wasn't it, Sean? Because we know that people are doing this, but we wanted to sort of up the stakes on it. Yeah, and in the professional learning that we provided to schools, we provided some examples of what that learning conversation might look like. Um, That was sort of the first part of the um, the session. And then the second part was some scenarios um, around different things that the student teacher might be doing or different bits of feedback that might need to be communicated and the mentors worked collaboratively to plan then a learning conversation based on those scenarios so hopefully by the end of the session they'd seen a good example or a couple of good examples and then had a chance to plan and practice themselves and and so that played into our first principle about you know this idea of being um Oh gosh, what was the word I was going to use, Sean? Empower mentors. Yeah, no, this idea. Yeah, they're being more confident, but also more competent Mm. at that because there's sort of something tangible to refer to. What do you mean by a learning conversation? And I'm really curious about that. And just as a heads up down the line, and um, Tom might raise his eyebrows at this, maybe he doesn't know this yet, but an episode that we've got coming out after this episode um, will unpick team teaching. So we're not going to do that in today's episode. But what I would like to do, if you could, is just elaborate a bit more. If I'm a student teacher and my mentor has trained in professional learning conversations, how can I, what can I expect from that when we sit down together um, to have that professional learning conversation? As I mentioned earlier, it should definitely happen after the research and inquiry activity has happened. But I would also say that you want to have some sort of conversation before as well, so that the student teacher and the mentor are on the same page around what it is that the purpose of that research and inquiry activity is. And so as a mentor, I would be thinking, okay, so what is the target that the student teacher is working on? And what activity is it that is going to support them to make progress towards that target? So I've thought about that prior to the meeting. And then I've planned some questions that will support my student teacher to be able to identify the priority. So check that they know what their priority is, because sometimes that's not always clear. There's a lot going on in schools. Maybe they've forgotten um, what that bit of feedback was. And then to support them to be able to identify next steps based on what they're then going to see. And then the conversation that happens afterwards is very similar. So remind me what our priority was. Here it is. What were you looking for when you went to observe? I was looking for these things. What did you see? And then a discussion around what they saw or what they found out if they were doing a more um, a reading based 
piece of research and inquiry and then okay so what are the implications for classroom practice and then almost have targets from that research and inquiry activity as well it's not just that we did it and we've ticked the research and inquiry box we did it and then what impact is it going to have on practice so those are kind of the two stages the pre-stage isn't essential but I think it will definitely help with the post-stage if you're both on the same page going into it because I know that sometimes that's feedback that I have from mentors is that they'll set some sort of task or activity for the student teacher and they won't necessarily come out with what they were hoping they came out with and having that pre-conversation can stop that from happening can mitigate those post-conversations that maybe don't go quite as well as you were hoping. And I think these could be really short tasks, mm, yeah. or they could be much more extensive tasks. Because it, you know, the, the process sounds quite long. I think, but I think a lot of that could be done reasonably quickly in a mentor's head. It's just a very short conversation, focused conversation, pre and post, but with the expectation that the student comes prepared to be able to go. This is what I'm learning, mm. and as you said, what difference does it make? Mm. What's going to happen now? It's quite a challenging set of skills this mentor needs to have, isn't it? I mean, I'm thinking now, nearly Dr. Sally, I think you've done some work on this, haven't you? Uh, <laughs> in relation to the attributes of a mentor, and previously it would either be just who was prepared to do it or a very experienced teacher or, or something like that. But it's more than that now, isn't and it? I, and I think this goes back to something that we've, we've really tried to encourage with our training and with the partnership schools that we work with is do select your mentors you know, the, this is the range of things that we think a, a mentor needs to be able to do. These are the attributes. Therefore, you know your staff in school, select them. Don't let it be the person who puts their finger on the nose, you know, or don't point to somebody and make them a mentor if they're not suitable, because it is a critical role. So I think you're right, Tom, is that part of selecting the right people and, and knowing what it is that they need. And they can get better. You can get better at being a mentor, but you've got to one, want to do it. I think there's a nice piece of research saying about being willing and being able to do the research, the, the role. So you could be able, but if you don't want to do it, no point doing it. So if you're advising a school, apart from them being willing and able, um, what other sort of top three things would, would they be looking for in their staff? I assume it's not necessarily the person who's been teaching the longest. Absolutely not, because I, no, it isn't definitely. I think those attributes are things that, um, and the skills that people bring they can be developed, but I think with a lot of people, they are qualities and, and skills that they have. But you would imagine within a school, uh, a management team knows their staff. They know what they bring. Um, so that part, using that information, what do we know about our staff that makes us think these things? So I guess one, well, I suppose we had three aspects, really. The idea that they're supportive, is absolutely critical because and supportive in the sort of emotional sense because it's a tough year you need somebody who can empathize with a student but also through that support can challenge so we need to have those two elements of yes i can look after you but i know how to move you forwards as well mm -hmm. and knowing that each individual student comes with their own profile how, what do you know about your student that will allow you to take them forward um so we, we've been working really we're doing a lot of thinking around recognizing an individual student and then mentors working out 
what does that student now need? How do I approach that? So that's really skillful, you know, to be able to do that effectively. And clearly, we'll get it wrong some of the time. Mm. So I think there was that part about the, the relationship and the support part. But also, they need to know how to move a student on. So they need to know how to make judgments about their progress and actually what challenges now take them forward. So, you know, I, I use the term assessment, but in a sort of informal and formal way because they're ultimately a, a gatekeeper of the profession as well mm. so they need to be able to be a little bit clinical and step back and say actually relative to the standards this student is here mm. which can slightly be at odds with the supportive role sometimes I think so again being able to negotiate that requires some emotional intelligence and obviously intellectual intelligence as well. Yeah, and I suppose a, a really kind of firm, as, you, as you've alluded to, firm understanding that a student teacher's kind of trajectory or journey in a PGCE year is not linear necessarily. So we've got a lot of mentors who come on board for what we call clinical practice two, the second school placement, where students can regress they because they're in a new context so you know a mentor would need to have the capacity to know that you know it seems like a simple thing yeah but but i think this is you know we've built this into the second part of the training for people who are taking students on the clinical practice too to say look at the individual student they will come with a profile but that profile is set in a context And at the moment as well, students are working in many schools under COVID restrictions. So some of the things you would like to see them do, the range of things are restricted. Mm -hmm. And if you expect them to be able to do things that they haven't seen because of the environment they're working in, the descriptors may be accurate from the experience that they've had. Mm -hmm. They're consistently doing certain things well, but they're doing a more limited range of things. Yeah. And therefore, when we put them into a new context, be really sensitive to those experiences that they've had and don't just look at a profile and go, they'll be here, because that may not be accurate. But really going back to working with an individual, you know, what do you know about that student? And it, as, you know, as, as, I'm sorry, if I ever said, you know, clinical practice too does not necessarily mean you are here. You know, there's going to be a whole variety of students walking through into clinical practice too. Yeah. I mean, thinking about this assessing of the student teachers, we have a set of professional standards here, which are relatively new that we use um, to assess. And I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot here, Sham, by asking you this. Um, they're, they're very aspirational, our professional teaching standards, but compared with the old ones that we used to use, which fair play were probably a bit too tick boxy and a bit too, you know, yes, you can, right, off you go kind of thing. Our standards are not very good at putting a floor under people who are really struggling. They're very good at avoiding putting a ceiling on them. And I'm just wondering, having come in from England, firstly, is that really different from England? And, and if it is, how do we get around that problem that we, we seem to either put a floor under people or avoid putting a ceiling on people? Do we just not let people in who need a floor or are there ways we can get around that problem that, that you might be able to bring with your experience from elsewhere? It's a great question, Tom. Sorry, that, that means it's also a horrible it's question. It's a great question. Give, give me a second to think about it. Um, I think that any sort of assessment framework, so be it a rubric, be it a set of standards that are, as you say, potentially tick box or kind of a list of things that you need to meet or not meet, they all bring slightly different challenges with it. And the challenge of subjectivity 
is there regardless of whether you're using the English teacher standards, the Welsh teacher standards, or some other kind of rubric. So in my previous role, we were working on using a teacher rubric that was based on Charlotte Danielson's work, who is an American teacher educator who has created a rubric that's used quite extensively over in the States. And we had created a rubric that included the teacher standards, um, but was not limited by the teacher standards, because I think... I think the English teacher standards maybe capture what you're saying around there being a flaw and a little bit tick boxy. And the first challenge was exemplifying what the teacher standards meant in practice. Challenge number one. And we worked on this over, I think, probably around a decade. And we had several iterations. I think we were on iteration number 50 something by the time I left. And I think they've carried on. So that was kind of challenge number one. Um, And then challenge number two was what does this look like in practice? And are we all on the same page? And I was doing a project where we were videoing lots of teacher practice, and then trying to assess that teacher practice from the video based on this rubric. And I could have I had a group of moderators who were some of our most experienced school leaders and some of our most experienced teacher developers, both for trainees and also qualified teachers. And sometimes we would be completely on different ends of the spectrum. We had four categories, so it's similar to our system at Cardiff Met. And there would be scenarios where someone had gone for category one and someone had gone for category three. And that was really quite surprising to us and led us to rewrite the rubric again. And I think that This is always going to be the challenge with any sort of assessment of teaching because we see slightly different things and we have slightly different priorities. So I might be observing a lesson where behaviour, say, isn't brilliant. And for me, behaviour is the absolute most important thing. And I can't see beyond that or I choose not to see beyond that because I think that has set the standard for the lesson. If behaviour is not good then that lesson is not a good lesson. Somebody else might observe that lesson and have a different expectation of behaviour, um, a different teaching style perhaps that is, um, yeah, that is different. And they see some really excellent learning taking place and they think, oh, the behaviour, yeah, maybe not brilliant, but fine. The learning was brilliant. So I'm going to give that a really good score. And I think that that is a real challenge when we have a system like we have in Wales with the teacher standards, whereby... It is open to subjectivity and that can be a really good thing because it's not putting people in boxes, it's not necessarily limiting the moves the teacher can make, the actions that they can take. We can all be our own individual teacher, we can develop as a professional and we have autonomy, um, which is another word that we did talk about a little bit in England, but I've heard it so much more now we've been in Wales. You can have teacher autonomy, but then, like you say, those teachers that are struggling at the bottom might benefit from a bit more of a specific, if you do these things, these things and these things, that's going to enable you to be aware to be capable and I know that from talking to senior mentors and mentors when they do have student teachers that are struggling they do tend to go down that route and they go through the teacher standards and they give them some clear and specific actions if you do this 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 and this that's going to help you move forwards and so in a way we're relying on our mentors again the standards themselves don't necessarily have those specific steps but mentors who are doing their job really effectively 
collectively have got those things in their heads that they are then communicating. Whether it is helpful for us as a university to provide those steps as well, I don't know. And it's something Sally and I have been talking about um, in relation to some work that we've been doing, whereby would it be helpful for us to provide, if a student teacher is really struggling with this standard, here are some things that you can do. And I think in some ways it would be useful, but then does that clash with the idea of a student teacher as an individual? Because that those things might not always work. Um, and so that's something that we're maybe thinking about for future years, but, but I early think, stages. I think the work that Tom and Emma are doing mm. on sort of exemplifying this, you know, what does some of the standards mean mm, yeah. would actually be very useful to university tutors and mentors and senior mentors in school, because I think there's a little bit of... Um, a lack of understanding some of the time about, and, and, and I'm in there with them, you know, what does that actually mean? Mm. When you have a standard, what does it mean? And to be able to identify how to help students make progress, perhaps we really need to understand all those things to go, it is about that. Yeah, that you need I to do some work. When someone is really kind of right down on the floor, I suppose, maligned though he is in some quarters, you know, the work of, work of someone like Lemov can be quite useful to give somebody something to grab onto. I suppose you just need your exit strategy from Lemov land, perhaps, so that you can become autonomous. And perhaps, and I think we still have work to do as an institution on this, gaining an even deeper understanding of the research that's out there into the different stages of teacher um, development from novice to expert. I've been reading um, some work by Dreyfus and Dreyfus, which is a 1986 source, actually, so it's quite dated now. But he was trying to make a case against AI and why computers will never be able to kind of reach that expert, what what human experts do compared to what AI do. And he used a lot of examples, including nurses. Now, we know that we use a clinical practice model here, but the descriptions from novice um, to sort of advanced beginner, and, and he goes through this process, really help he also makes connections with learning to drive a car and how you know that when you get to expert level of driving a car that's not the same as getting to expert level of <clears throat> being a, a nurse or a or a teacher but it's useful to think about you know when you're first driving a car you wouldn't dream of putting a novice who's just learning to drive a car on the motorway straight away or in an environment where multi-sensory things are coming at you all at once so i think when we understand those stages more deeply we might then be able to understand why certain standards or you know certain aspects of practice novices are having trouble with or students who are moving to a new school are reverting back to novices in. So it's, there, there are kind of layers that we need to understand to be able to make those standards make sense um, from a, a teacher's journey. And I think a lot of them Really, if we, maybe if we're being honest, I'm going to say the controversial thing here. Some of those standards, probably a student teacher wouldn't be able to get capable or expert at in a year. I've said it. It's <laughs> I, I, I'm, Emma, I'm, I'll back you on that one. <laughs> I think it is, you know. But like you said, Tom, there's this this ground, isn't there? You say we, you've got to get to over the winning line, and the winning line is capable on all the standards. Mm. Um, and whether there should be some flexibility in that to go, mm. do you know what? That bit is really difficult for anybody to do, whether you're experienced or not. Mm. You know, expecting somebody to do that, and it's not even a year. I do think there's a dissonance in our world between the fact that we have these very aspirational, very autonomous standards and the fact that as ITE people, 
we have to say yes or no to people entering the profession. I suppose it's easier if if you've got somebody who's a serving teacher, but as you say, here we have actually got to make a call on it yeah. at the end of each year. That's it. Well, it's really exciting to hear that we are really trying to we've always been I think but you know we're starting to dig deep and think about what the new world mentor profile needs to be what their experience needs to be like what professional learning they need and how they're going to work with us in partnership because our model is a partnership model in helping student teachers gain that autonomy that agency to get the most out of research and inquiry and for the mentors to get a sense of fulfillment from their role as well because it strikes me that all of these approaches you're talking about are going to benefit the student teacher but are also potentially going to help the mentor sort of be able to elaborate on their own practice and make the sort of implicit explicit I just ask one more little fun one (laughs) go on Tom stick a grenade in so just before we finish then, uh, I'm, I'm sort of intrigued by what Sean was saying about initially working uh, or previously working in a model where you could actually tell people what to do rather than in our model where we basically ask nicely <laughs> all of the time. Given all the things that you've said, both of you, if you could wave a magic wand and make one thing happen in every school that we send our student teachers to, one change, no matter how crazy, what would it be? I think that I would want every mentor selected by their school because they have the qualities to do the role. Okay. Yeah, I think similarly, I would want all new mentors to be trained in the role and then all existing mentors to be offered professional learning every year. There we go. I shall subside into my <laughs> controversy box while you am do I, some. Am I allowed? Am I allowed yeah. to answer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. That's okay. You should say yours <laughs> yeah. as well. Let's flip it back on you. Okay. You go first, or me? I think I know what you're going to say. So I'm going to I'm going to say mine first and all get right. in there first. Right. <laughs> it could be totally selfish. I would want all mentors to have a significant amount of time off mm. their timetable lead teaching so that they can dedicate that time to a student teacher um, and also to collaborating with other mentors in the school that would be and mine you have almost entirely gazumped me except that <laughs> i would <laughs> i would add that they should also be going into other schools as well because going and seeing what was going on in other schools was one of the biggest light bulbs i had but unfortunately i'd left and come to this job before i was allowed to travel around and go and nose around in other schools and therefore it felt like a little bit of a late uh, addition to my professional development I'm sorry I stole yours. That's okay. I'll I did it knowingly. At least I'm an honest thief. <laughs> okay. I, if, I think if you put those three contributions together, though, what, wow, what a, what a chance for our student teachers to be really, really well supported. Okay, so let's move on to our short slots. We know that you've prepared. Thank you very much. And we know you've divvied it up. So, Sean, you've got something for us to try. I have. So I would like to talk about how we give feedback to student teachers but also to any teacher that you're giving feedback to and the thing that I would like people to try or recommend trying is to have the person that you're giving feedback to use practice or apply what has been learnt and I think this sort of has got two steps so first of all once you've given a target so maybe you've done a learning and teaching observation or maybe you've had a learning conversation and there are some targets there first of all talk to the student teacher about what does that actually mean and do they understand it in the same way 
that you mean it. So an example for that might be keep students on task. Do they actually understand what that means? And I have a memory from when I was a student teacher where my mentor gave me some feedback. And the feedback was, you had 80% of the children in your class on task. And I thought to myself, brilliant. 80%. Like, that's nearly all of them. Excellent. And genuinely, I was really pleased with that. And that wasn't what my mentor meant. My mentor meant you need 100% of the students on task and the children on task. So that's number one. Do you have that kind of shared understanding? And then that second thing is, what does it look like in practice? Because a target like that keeps students on task could mean a number of different things. So I was thinking about what it could mean. It could mean setting clear expectations for the task. So saying you're going to have 10 minutes or saying you're going to complete this task with your partner or in silence. It could mean that the mentor wants the student teacher to circulate and monitor engagement. It could mean that they want you to give one-to-one feedback to anyone that's not on task. It could be that you would pause and reset the class if they weren't on task. It could be about progressing through the task as planned. So maybe using mini plenaries or using questioning. What does that actually mean? And I think that that's a really good conversation to have. And then how are you then going to apply it in practice? So pull up the next day's lesson plan and think, okay, when are you going to need to work on keeping the children on task? It's going to be during that bit of independent work. What's that going to look like? What are you going to do? And potentially show them, show them what you mean. If you're talking about circulating, you don't just mean walking up and down the front, do you? You mean going around all of the tables. Show them what that means and then have them practice it themselves. Because so often the reason that feedback doesn't get implemented is because it's not 100% clear what it is that you mean by it or the student teacher doesn't know how to implement it. And we talked earlier a little bit about novices and novices experience the classroom differently to an experienced teacher. So sometimes giving them a piece of feedback that you think is quite manageable might not be manageable to them because they've got so many other things going on and they're remembering the register and they're thinking so-and-so's forgotten his water bottle today and for you as an experienced teacher those things don't matter in the moment of the teaching but for the student teacher having that bit of an opportunity to practice before is absolutely invaluable so to summarize because I've waffled a little bit give a target make sure they know what that target means and then give them a chance to use practice or apply it in context. And goodness me, don't we bang on with student teachers about the need to set clear learning intentions, clear success criteria, remember that they're the experts and the pupils aren't, and to model things. But isn't it funny how these things don't automatically Mm -hmm. jump up to the next level? And we've got a lovely episode if you want to go back into the annals um, oh, on yes. deliberate practice, um, Deans for Impact's uh, research on that. And, and a lot of what you're talking about there, particularly the bit at the end where they practice the practice, um, you can listen to uh, our fine colleague from, colleagues from Teach First talk about that. So maybe have a go back and, and listen to that one. And Sal, your half of the, the deal was to bring us something interesting. Yeah, and I've just, um, I've bought a, a book I've read because I've I've read quite a lot of papers for my doctorate, but I wasn't sure how interesting they'd be to everybody else. <laughs> but I just thought I would just recommend this if somebody wants a good read. Um, and it's L.F. Shaflak, 10 minutes, 38 seconds in this strange world. 
And it recounts her friendship with a small group of what I would call outsiders. They don't fit. It's set in Istanbul, so it's very evocative of the of the country. But it kind of evokes strong feelings ranging from love and passion to injustice and cruelty. There's lots of work on supporting each other within a small friendship group. And I think it's sometimes we forget that people are very individual and their circumstances are, are very specific to them. But it's just a beautiful story. So I would recommend that to people. Lovely. Thank you, Sal. Well, I'm going to be shoved forcibly back into my controversial box (laughs) 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 for asking all the mean questions. I should be buying Sean several cups of tea for some of the ones I asked there. Thank you very much both. That's been a really nice revisit of the vitally important world of mentoring, which has been overdue because you were talking about this back in season one, weren't you, Sal? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure we'll be back to talk about it again. But until next time, two weeks time, stay safe and well. We'll be back in your ears very soon. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guests this episode were our colleagues Sally Bethel and Sean Wickersham. Thanks both. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at Talk Teaching Pod if you'd like to get in touch. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.